Marianne Malkin has been connected with Rare Book School from the beginning. That is to say, since 1983, when Rare Book School began in New York City. She formally attended classes here in 1983 and for several years thereafter. Then, and since then, she has been one of our principal ambassadors, always in residence at Rare Book School for at least some time during the several weeks in which we are open for business each year. Her presence greatly enriches the school. Uh, she's unable to be at the lecture tonight, but she hopes to see you at the reception. Many of you here will remember A.B. Bookman's Weekly, a magazine carrying bookseller ads for used and rare books wanted and for sale, with front matter of interest to the overlapping worlds of used and rare book selling, research librarianship, and book collecting. Marianne Malkin's late husband, Saul M. Malkin, founded A.B. Bookman's Weekly and edited it for a generation. The Malkins sold A.B. in the early 70s, and it continued in business under the direction of Jacob Chernofsky until last year when it ceased operation, finally superseded by the Internet. A.B. Bookman's Weekly made its debut in 1948 as the Antiquarian Bookman. It was published by the R.R. R. Bowker Company as a spin-off of the so-called back half of Publishers Weekly. It included dealer's lists of books wanted and a few single copies of books for sale from anyone. The front matter of Antiquarian Bookman consisted of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, and librarians, and included a column written by Jacob Blank, providing news, musings, and gossip about the trade. It was as well for many years the principal organ of the ABAA, long before it had its own publications. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual lecture in honor of Saul Malkin's contribution to the American antiquarian book trade. Michael Winship gave the first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography under Bookhart's press auspices at Columbia University in December 1985, in time for Saul Malkin to congratulate him on his performance, though Malkin himself was too ill to attend. Indeed, Saul M. Malkin died in 1986, a few months after Winship delivered the first Malkin lecture. Malkin lecturers over the years have included William Barlow, Robert Darnton, Christopher de Hamel, Lucian Goldsmith, Catherine Kais Lieb, Paul Needham, Kenneth Rendell, Bernard M. Rosenthal, Anthony Rhoda, Justin Schiller, Roger Stoddard, G. Thomas Tansel, and Marjorie Wynn. It's a great pleasure to introduce the 2000 Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien lecturer in bibliography, William S. Reese. President of the William Reese Company in New Haven, Connecticut, his firm dominates the antiquarian book trade in the fields of Americana, including American history and literature. William Reese was an RBS faculty member for four years during our Columbia days, and I hope he will uh, be so again at Virginia in the future. Since last year, he has funded an annual Reese Fellowship at Rare Book School in American Bibliography and the History of the Book in the Americas. This year's Reese Fellow, Eric Lupfer, was in residence here during our June session, and many of you met him. Since then, he has returned to his dissertation at the University of Texas. Last year's Reese Fellow, Terry Chenard, has come back to join the Rare Book School staff again this year before heading north to take up a brand new teaching appointment as Victor Homer Fellow at Wells College in Aurora, New York. William Reese has lectured and published widely on the history of the American antiquarian book trade, illustrated books, and related subjects. Tonight, he speaks on Paul Mellon as a collector of Americana and Virginiana. William Reese. Thank you, Terry. Paul Mellon, who died last year at the age of 91, will best be remembered as a philanthropist, a great art collector, and a benefactor of many institutions in the United States and Great Britain. Most people, most people associate Mellon's name with art in one way or another. 
As the founder of the Yale Center for British Art, a museum he filled with treasures, as a guiding hand in the expansion of the National Gallery of Art, furthering a benefaction to the nation begun by his father, or here in Virginia for his gifts to the Virginia Museum of Art in Richmond. His collections of art have been celebrated in numerous exhibitions and catalogs and remain as a legacy on the walls of institutions throughout the country. It is far less well known that Mr. Mellon was as great a collector of books as he was of art. He collected them in varying degrees of intensity from his student days at Clare College until his old age. His interests crossed a wide variety of subjects, some of which he pursued throughout his career, while others were given away to appropriate libraries along the way. Beginning as an undergraduate collector of Kelmscott and other British fine printing, he pursued at different times sporting books, works on alchemy and the occult, illustrated and color plate books, maps and atlases, early printed books, especially British, Blake, works of natural history, especially botany, French illustrated books, and Americana. Taken all in all, Mr. Mellon was arguably the greatest collector of books in the latter half of the 20th century, and a dominant figure in the rare book market during the quarter century of his greatest activity from 1950 to 1973. The diversity of his interests and his own modesty served to cloak these activities, especially in contrast to the high-profile world of art. Nor would Mr. Mellon's autobiography give much of a clue, for it contains only passing references to his bookish interests. A visitor to the Mellon Collecting Pleasure Dome, the Brick House, on his estate in Upperville, Virginia, would have come away with a very different impression. The most impressive space in this mansion, converted to a private museum, the Abbey Room, was a vast but beautifully proportioned library running the entire length of its second floor. The walls filled with shelves, except for the fenestrations and mantles. Hinged wall panels in various other rooms concealed more bookshelves. Various offices held an excellent reference library. And a small room in one of the wings contained the entire library of John Locke until Mr. Mellon gave it to the Bodleian Library at Oxford. Next to the lock room was the original library room dating from the construction of the brick house as a home, and hence known as the old library. Here, until a few months ago, was shelved the topic of my talk this evening, the Mellon Collection of Americana and Virginiana. If Mr. Mellon's book collecting in general is little known, his achievements as a collector of books and manuscripts relating to the history of America, and especially of Virginia, is even less so. The British material, from Caxton's to Blake to the J.R. Abbey collection, made up largely of British plate books executed in Aquitaine lithography, might be anticipated in the context of his well-known passion for British art and the creation and filling of an institution such as the Center for British Art. But virtually no one is aware that at the time of his death, Mellon's collection of printed and manuscript Americana was the finest in private hands in terms of quality and quantity of contents, even though some of its most fabulous pieces had already been given away. Indeed, when all is considered, one must conclude that only a few famed collections, such as those of Thomas W. Streeter or Lester Harmsworth, both with focal themes quite different from the Mellon collection, rival it in the quality among collections formed in the 20th century in the field. If Mellon had done nothing but collect Americana books, this is the problem with dog tags. If Mellon had done nothing but collect Americana books, he would, he would be remembered as one of the greatest figures in the field. But as it is, this sideline of a great collector, formed quietly, held discreetly, and dispersed by gift and bequest without the fanfare of a posthumous sale, is an achievement in danger of oblivion, from which I hope in some small measure to rescue it in this talk. The formation of the Mellon Collection of Americana began in earnest in 1957, but it did not commence in a vacuum. 
By that time, the Mellon collections already contained some important pieces of Americana, and the scope of the earlier purchases had a significant bearing on what was to come later. Mr. Mellon's first major book collection was of sporting books. In fact, this was an interest that continued until the end of his life, when he continued to buy modern books, mainly about horses and racing. In the 1930s, however, he formed a classic gentleman's sporting library, built around a core of British plate books by Olkin and others, but including books in all aspects of sport and some very nice Americana rarities. Among these were Joseph Seacombe's Business and Diversion in Offensive to God, Boston, 1741, the first American book on fishing, and the first and rarest of American hunting books, The Sportsman's Companion, New York, 1783. A typical capstone to such an assemblage in this era was a set of the double elephant folio Audubon Birds of America, then readily available to anyone with the means and the place to put it. It used to be said that a billiard room was necessary as a set uh, could go under the table and then be opened up on top of it. As far as I know, Mr. Mellon, who was interested in many aspects of sport, lacked a billiard room, and indeed space to store all of the books he bought was a perennial problem until the opening for the Center of, Center of British Art. Nonetheless, he bought a superb set of the birds in 1937 for $11,000, a strong price at the time. That set is now in Mrs. Mellon's Oak Spring Garden Library, presently the only copy in the state of Virginia. Shortly after the purchase of the Audubon, World War II and other matters claimed Mellon's attention, and he did not seriously return to book collecting for a decade. Around 1950, Mr. Mellon began collecting books and art in earnest. He was in an unparalleled position to do so. The heir to one of the greatest American fortunes, he was one of the richest men in the world. It was a world awash in great things at what today seem like laughably low prices. The depression of the 1930s, followed by the catastrophe of World War II, brought a glut of wonderful material into the marketplace in every area of antiques. This was particularly true of Europe and England, and of course Mr. Mellon's interest lay in the latter. This transatlantic flow would be an important element in collecting Americana as well as British art as his collection was formed. In 1953, Mellon took a momentous step as a book collector, purchasing a large segment of the library of the distinguished British collector, Major J.R. Abbey. One of Abbey's primary interests was books illustrated in acritant lithography, and he had already compiled two superb catalogs of his collections, Scenery of Great Britain and Ireland in Aquatint Lithography, 1770-1860, published in 1952, and Life in England, published in 1953. Mellon bought these en bloc via the agency of John Carter, head of the rare book department of the London branch of Scribner's. When Abbey completed the catalog of his travel in Aquatint Lithography in 1956, this part of the collection was also purchased. The Abbey books became a core around which, which much further collecting was built. As works which fit the Abbey criteria but had not been in the Abbey collection were added. When the brick house was renovated, the second floor library where these books were housed was dubbed the Abbey Room, a magnificent bibliophilic sight to see. Mellon took care to preserve the collection with additions as a collection and virtually all of the books in the Abbey catalogs went as a group to the Center for British Art. So a researcher using the Abbey catalogs today may safely assume that the copy described therein is now at Yale. The Abbey purchase had a direct impact on collecting Americana. The travel collection contained well over 100 titles relating to the Americas. These ranged from great classic works, such as Maximilian of Deeds' Travels, with Carl Bodmer's magnificent Aquatints of Indian Life, or George Catlin's North American Indian Portfolio, to some extraordinary rarities, such as I am Belisario's Sketches of Character, issued in three parts in Kingston, Jamaica in 1837, with 12 locally produced lithographic plates showing recently emancipated slaves in carnival costumes, or John Eckstein's Picturesque Views of Diamond Rock, published in London in 1805, depicting the British Navy's amazing exertions in seizing and fortifying an islet off Martinique 
to blockade the harbor of its capital during the Napoleonic Wars. Here were both large folios, such as Daniel Edgerton's wonderfully realized Travel Views in Mexico, 1840, and more modest but beautifully illustrated books, such as the Arctic Voyages of Sir John Franklin in the 1820s and the many works produced by naval officers engaged in searching for him after his final lost expedition, mainly published in the 1850s. The first separate inspiration in collecting Americana, and one that continued as a strong theme thereafter, was to build on this abbey base. As impressive as that collection was, American books were not the major's strong suit, and, and he did not include a single one of the important color plate books actually produced in the United States. To this end, Mellon acquired first the greatest of American Aquatint books, William G. Wall's Hudson River Portfolio, New York, 1825, in an exceptional copy presented by the French citizens resident in New York to the Prince de Joinville, followed by the second greatest and far rarer Picturesque Views of American Scenery by Joshua Shaw, published by Matthew Carey in Philadelphia in 1820. The Mellon copy of this work, known as the Landscape Album, is certainly the finest known, mint in the original parts in plain gray wrappers. A folio McKinney Hall, History of the Indian Tribes of North America in original parts, rounded out these early purchases, along with a supplemental purchase from Abbey of works that he had acquired too late to include in the published catalogs. In the spring of 1957, Mellon sought to bring more order to his book collecting by hiring a librarian, Willis Vandeveter. Indeed, proper cataloging control of the collections was already a formidable task when it's remembered that other categories of books were also being actively collected and that the Abbey books alone constituted several thousand titles, often large and multi-volume works with complex collations. Every book collector on their own scale seems to have the capacity for exceeding their shelf space, and for all of Mellon's resources, he was no exception. Until the renovation of the Brick House in 1961, many books were stored in the basement of the National Gallery of Art. In the later 1960s and early 70s, books were stored at the Beinecke Library prior to the completion of the Center for British Art in 1974. The shelving issues were not satisfactorily resolved until large groups of material moved to the BAC, and most of the botanical material moved to Mrs. Mellon's Oak Spring Garden Library when its separate building was completed in the 1980s, by which time Mr. Mellon had essentially ceased to collect books. Virtually all of the Americana in Virginiana, however, was shelved in the brick house, mainly in the old library, from 1961 until its final dispersal in the spring of this year. An immediate effect of Band of Vander's arrival as librarian was that Mellon began buying from a much wider group of dealers. Hitherto, he had bought almost entirely through a few agents, most notably Thomas J. Gannon of New York. This had necessarily been the case, given the scope of Mellon's other interests and activities. Staff help to develop the collections made it possible to cast a much wider net in the dealer community. It also made it reasonable to broaden the scope of material being considered. The groundwork for the Americana collection had now been laid, and the stage was set for major acquisitions. The focus of purchases in the first half of 1958 was entirely on building the American Abbey idea. A few grand books were added, notably via the first Americana to be bought at auction, with the firm of Edward Everstott and Sons acting as agent. At the sale of Dr. Lester Bauer, one of the important Americana sales of the decade, Mellon purchased General Victor Collot's Journey in North America, Paris, 1826. One of the greatest of Midwestern books, the narrative of this French spy with its remarkable atlas of maps and views along the Ohio-Mississippi, was printed in 1804, suppressed by Napoleon, and finally issued two decades later. The publisher admitted to destroying a large part of the original stock to make the book more valuable in publication. Another spectacular Midwestern book, The Valley of the Mississippi, illustrated a series of views by Lewis F. Thomas and J.C. Wilde, was published in St. Louis in 1841. Its plates are the first lithographs published in the Trans-Mississippi West, and the Bauer copy, with all nine parts and original wrappers, is probably the finest exit of half-dozen copies, complete sets, known. 
Many of the illustrated Americana pieces purchased, however, were not great rarities, and they demonstrate another hallmark of Mellon book collecting. While there were great books aplenty, he was never a high-spot collector. Rather, the goal was to build in depth on thematic lines. Thus, a collection of small illustrated guidebooks to Niagara Falls, a favorite theme of 19th century American iconography, was purchased from the Everstats. None of these are notable in and of themselves, but they added context and contrast to the larger view books in Abbey. In short, rarity or value was not the sole measure of interest, and some quite modest works in terms of cost were given equal shelf space with great rarities because it was recognized that each had its own particular merit. The great event of 1958, and the true trigger of the Americana collection as a separate entity, came from a different quarter. The New York dealer John Fleming, noting the year marked the 350th anniversary of the founding of the Jamestown Colony, issued a catalog entitled Virginia's Role in American History. Fleming, for many years the right-hand assistant of the famous Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach, had purchased the stock of the Rosenbach Company from the foundation left by the doctor and his brother Philip after the latter's death in 1953. He could draw upon many treasures accumulated in that legendary hoard over the preceding decade, many of which the doctor probably hoped to take home for his famous personal collection of Americana. Now Fleming brought out a formidable array of mouthwatering rarities, aiming the catalog at the University of Virginia, hoping they would be able to find a donor for his purchase. The UVA librarian, John Cook Wiley, was invited to contribute a preface, and its sardonic nature suggests he'd already tried and failed to raise the funds when he wrote it. Quote, Mr. Fleming has asked me to write a foreword to this catalog because I suppose he wants to add something in the way of modesty through a display that might otherwise smack of complacency. There are, in fact, some nice pieces here, end quote. Charlottesville, however, could not take up the challenge. The catalog found a receptive reader in Upperville. In the summer of 1958, a deal was struck with Fleming, and the contents of the catalog passed en bloc to Mellon for $95,000. The Fleming purchase launched the Americana collection in a new direction, toward building material on the early history of Mellon's adopted home state of Virginia. First in the group came five of the nine tracks issued in support of the Virginia Company in its early years, led by Robert Johnson's Nova Britannia, London 1609. The copy of Johnson was originally owned by White Kennett, one of the pioneering collectors of Americana, and the author of the first bibliography on the topic, the Bibliotheca Americana Primordia. The copy later belonged to Herschel B. Jones, came to Rosenbach with his collection in 1939, and is now in Mrs. Mellon's Garden Library. The rarest of the Virginia Company tracks was also here, Robert Rich's News from Virginia, London 1610. Known in only six copies, this was the last in private hands, and had been offered by the Rosenbach Company for a then staggering $27,800 in 1946, an artistic price. It was one of the jewels of Mellon's Virginiana, and ultimately, the only great piece he owned relating to the state to be given outside its borders. In 1974, the John Carter Brown Library published an ingenious reverse exhibition of 101 rare Americana not in the library. This glorified wish list, conceived by Tom Adams, the librarian, included the rich, noting that if JCB were to obtain it, it would be the only institution to hold all nine of the Virginia Company tracks in their first editions. With his characteristic generosity and sense of the appropriate, which underlay many of his gifts, Mr. Mellon gave the rich to the John Carter Brown in 1996. The tracks were not the only riches in the Fleming Purchase. One of the greatest pieces, surely, was the petition from the Virginia House of Burgesses signed by Speaker Peyton Randolph to George III asking the Crown to halt the importation of slaves into the American colonies. This is now in the Virginia Historical Society. Also included was the earliest known printing of the 1776 Virginia Constitution and the original manuscript roll call of the Virginia Convention's vote on secession in 1861. These latter two are both of the University of Virginia now. I will go ahead of the story slightly to describe the rest of Fleming's dealings with Mr. Mellon in Virginiana. 
obviously pleased with his success, Fleming set about assembling another catalog of Virginia material to launch as an end block offer. Entitled Virginia and Her Illustrious Sons, this assemblage was not drawn from old stock, but as Fleming later confessed in a letter to Mellon, quote, I collected material principally with you in mind. The offer was made in February 1961 at $86,000 for a group of 27 manuscripts and books. There must have been a sense that Fleming was reaching in his price, and when Van de Vander offered him $65,000 two months later, he accepted with alacrity, while explaining rather lamely that although, quote, there were several other interested parties, sure there were, I sincerely feel obligated to assist you in acquiring Virginia material. Once burned, twice shy, it was years before Fleming sold Mellon any more Americana. It is a measure of the times, the fabulous material available at low prices, that Fleming, Fleming's first price was deemed excessive, or that he would cave in to the degree that he did. Included in this group was Jefferson's famous letter to John Holmes on the Missouri Compromise, certainly one of the greatest American political letters ever written, in which he says the news of a formal division of the country between slave and free states came to him like a fire bell in the night. There was also Jefferson's letter to Governor Cobble in which he interprets the Constitution at length, a manuscript record of the trial of John Brown, a wonderful letter from George Washington to General William Heath written from Mount Vernon in 1797. All of these now at UVA. Supported by an array of material lesser only by comparison, the group today looks like a remarkable bargain, but clearly Fleming viewed the discounted price as his best option at the time. Nor did Mellon rise to the dangled but unpriced bait of the official proclamation of the Louisiana Purchase signed by Jefferson and Madison and described by Fleming as, quote, the greatest document I have ever purchased. This was eventually sold not to Mellon but to Mrs. Charles Engelhardt and later bought by myself at her sale in 1996 and sold to a private collection. The first Fleming catalog purchase in the summer of 1958 was followed that fall by the greatest single acquisition Mr. Mellon ever made in Americana, and one which solidified his commitment to the field. On November 21st of that year, he purchased via H.P. Krauss for $180,000 the papers of the Comte de Rochambeau, the commander of French forces in America during the American Revolution. The Rochambeau papers had remained in the hands of descendants at the family chateau near Tours until 1952, when Krauss and the French Americana expert Chaminal acquired them. As Krauss described it, quote, in a somber, poorly furnished room, heaps of paper lay piled on a table, though dirty, primitively bundled, and very unimpressive. The first package opened contained letters sparkling like diamonds, one after another, letters signed by Washington, Rochambeau, and Lafayette. The heart of the archive was Washington's correspondence with Rochambeau, dozens of letters, tracing the strategy and conduct of the war in great detail, as well as the minutes of the key conferences between the two commanders. There was also Rochambeau's journal of the Yorktown campaign, maps detailing the march of the French army southward, and the related material. There was, besides Lafayette letters, to Lafayette's letters to Rochambeau, reporting on his independent command in Virginia, the correspondence of Admiral de Grasse coordinating naval activity, and the reports of all of Rochambeau's chief lieutenants in the American campaigns. Krauss was fully justified in feeling that the papers were among, quote, the greatest and most glorious materials in American history. Krauss and Chaminade brought Roland Tree of the firm Henry Stevens in uh, to the dealer partnership holding the papers. Despite the best efforts of this very able trio and another indication of the market in the 1950s, they held the material for six years with no buyer in sight. Krauss was exasperated about how little Americans seemed to care about their own history. Quote, If someone had offered this collection to me in the middle of a rainy night on the condition I walked 20 miles, I would have done so without hesitation, he said. Mellon needed no such dowsing to add them to his collection. In 1992, he presented them to the Beinecke Library at Yale where their arrival was commemorated with a major exhibition and a catalog the following year. With these great manuscript acquisitions in hand, 
1959 saw a flowering of Mellon's Americana collecting into new and broader themes. Color plate books continued to be added, most notably a complete copy of J.O. Lewis's Aboriginal Portfolio, Philadelphia 1835, a book virtually impossible to find in all ten parts because the subscribers dropped away one by one to subscribe to the vastly better executed McKinney and Hall. A copy of J.W. Audubon's A Board of Illustrated Notes of a Western Tour, New York, 1852, a playbook depicting the overland journey to California during the gold rush. Younger Audubon's work also failed to find subscribers, and fewer than a dozen copies are known. Of great interest were two sets of progressive color proofs of chromolithographs by the Boston master of the craft, Louis Prang, including one of Thomas Moran's famous views of Yellowstone. Two smaller themes began to be developed, American architecture and American drawing books and art instruction manuals. The most expensive purchases, though, were in Virginia material, where such classics as Lionel Gatford's Public Good or the present sad state and condition of the English colony in Virginia, London 8, 1657, and Ralph Haymore's True Discourse, London 1615, added to the foundations of the holdings on the state. Another prime piece was the copy of the privately printed first edition of Thomas Jefferson's Notes in the State of Virginia, Paris 1785, inscribed from Thomas Jefferson to the Philadelphia polymath David Rittenhouse. Since Rittenhouse was the first president of the American Philosophical Society, this country's first learned society, and Jefferson II, it is a particularly resonant association. The greatest expansion of this period, though, it was into works of travel and exploration, mainly in North America. Such classics as Hennepin's New Discovery of a Vast Country in America, London, 1698, Paul Kane's Wanderings of an Artist, London, 1759, and William Bartram's Travels, Philadelphia, 1791, added important narratives that were all illustrated as well. 1959 also saw an expanding base of dealers selling to Mellon, there was a willingness to buy from anyone who had good books to offer, and the interest in Americana and Virginiana had by this time become well-known among those who had material in the stock. Books came from Henry Stevens, Peter Decker, Howard Mott, H.P. Krauss, Seven Gables, Warren Howell, Edward Everstott and Sons, Hamlin Barker, Richard Wormser, and Jake Zaitlin, a roll call of leading dealers in the Americana trade at that point. In the end, over 70 dealers sold Mr. Mellon material for the Americana collection. Aside from a single transaction with Lionel and Philip Robinson, which I will describe shortly, the largest suppliers by item or value were Henry Stevens, Mott, the Everstotts, Fleming, Krauss, and Kenneth Nebensall, then just starting out in the trade in Chicago. Beyond that, the acquisitions were drawn from a remarkably large group. The selection of purchases from 1960 and 61 demonstrates how wide the scope of the collection had become. From Henry Stevens came a group of journals and documents by the French officer Louis-Antoine Bougainville, describing his role in the French Army in the United States during the American Revolution, including acting as liaison with the Navy during the Yorktown campaign. From H.P. Krauss came the 1494 Basel Illustrated Edition of the Columbus Letter, describing the discovery of the New World with woodcuts that are the first depictions of American Indians, if only if, as imagined by European woodcut artists. Kennedy Galleries provided a set of Winslow Homer's extremely rare group of lithographs, campaign sketches, Boston's 1863, drawn directly on the stone by the artist himself. This, there, this was both illustrated material and Virginiana, for the Civil War scenes were originally drawn in Union Army camps during the Peninsular Campaign. Another such double, and then doubled again, came from Jake Zaitlin, two copies in different states of Edward Byers' album of Virginia. As an aside, it should be noted that Mellon was often willing to acquire multiple copies of books if there were significant variants, and sometimes even insignificant variants. He ultimately had four copies of the buyer, five different sets of Maximilian of Vide's famous travels of the Bodmer Atlas, four sets of George Harvey's extremely rare scenes in the primitive forests of America. This kind of duplication of rarity can be mind-numbing to behold. The only time I personally have had a set of the Harvey in stock in 1981, 
I was trying to understand the variance and had my first contact with the Mellon collection when I wrote and asked for details of Mr. Mellon's copy. When the polite reply informed me that there were four, which one did I want to know about? It made a young bookseller feel very small indeed. To return to acquisitions, Exploration added a major gem with a superlative copy of Lewis Clark and Boards from Peter Decker. The Siever copy sold at, London, at Sotheby's last year was advertised as the best ever, but I can assure you the Mellon copy is better. From the Chicago dealers Hamlin Barker came an amazing collection of sketches by George Francis Lyon on the second Parry expedition to the high Canadian Arctic in 1821. Lyon was forced to work in graphite because watercolors would have frozen in the climate. His drawings are rough, evocative images of Eskimo life at the time of first European context. H.M. Fletcher, for six pounds, supplied a copy of C. E. Lester's Gallery of Illustrious Americans, New York, 1850, the first American plate book based on daguerreotypes. From Krauss came a glorious set of the, both the grand and petite voyages of debris, the first great collection of illustrated travels in full 18th century French Morocco. Kennedy Gallery supplied a copy of George, Catlin item, uh, George Catlin's rarest item, the six plates the artist produced under contract with the gun manufacturer Colt to promote Colt's famous revolvers. One of four complete sets known to survive, the Mellon copy is the only one in really fine condition. And from Hatchards in London, not a regular source, came the five beautiful charts of Sir Francis Drake's West Indian voyage of 1585, executed immediately after his return by Baptista Boazio, including the first view of an American city to be published, that of St. Augustine. This last purchase reflects a new and burgeoning interest in atlases, maps, and cartography. As the 1960s progressed, the map and atlas component of the Mellon book collections were developed with ever greater strength. One of the most extraordinary purchases came from Zaitlin in 1960, a complete set of Blau's Atlas Mayor of 1662, this copy prepared for the Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold I, in full red velvet bindings with silver bosses and maps exquisitely hand-colored with gold and silver fairly dripping off the pages. Another remarkable piece was the manuscript world map of 1587 associated with Sir Francis Drake, based upon his world-encompassing voyage of the previous decade, one of the masterpieces of Elizabethan cartography. There were numerous atlases more modest only in comparison to these treasures. The first uh, early editions of the fourth book of the English Pilot, the first English coastal atlas of American shores. Faden's American Atlas of 1777, the most important atlas of the Revolution. A series of early Ptolemy atlases, including the 1511 edition with the great world map showing the New World, and many others of American interest. Most of these atlases and maps were given to the Center for British Art after its opening in 1974. There's probably a link between his interest in cartography and Mr. Mellon's involvement with a famous, or infamous, depending on one's viewpoint, Vinland map. The full story of this controversial manuscript, which purports to be a world map of circa 1440, showing an island identified as Vinland, discovered by Leif Erikson, is too long and too well known to recite here. The map was brought to the attention of the Yale Library by the rare book dealer Lawrence Witten in 1959 and for some time investigated in secret by Witten and several Yale curators. When Yale became convinced of its authenticity, Mellon was approached and agreed to buy it, the most expensive piece of Americana he ever purchased, and I, I believe the most expensive single manuscript or book he ever purchased. He immediately gave it to Yale, who announced the map and its accompanying documents to great fanfare in 1965. In all of this, Mellon remained an anonymous donor, although it was generally known among the cognoscenti, if only because no one else would have footed the bill for such an expensive item merely to aid scholarship. The Vinland map aroused a storm of controversy which goes on unabated to this day. Different chemical tests have proclaimed at first a fake, then real again, and now a fake again, and its merits and demerits have been argued by veteran scholars and crackpots alike. I vividly recall being at the reader's desk at the Beinecke Library when a disconsolate group of curators trooped out of a meeting in which they had been informed of the first ink test labeled the map of fake in 1974. The then librarian of Yale presented with, pressed Witten to give back the money. 
and Whitten wrote Mellon asking what he wished to do under the circumstances. As Whitten records, quote, he replied with his usual generosity that all parties had realized there was an element of risk in the purchase, and it was a pity the map turned out to be a fake, end quote. That response tells you all you need to know about Mr. Mellon's willingness to take a chance in supporting scholarship. A more pedigreed and genuine purchase came from Krauss, who had bought the book and map collections of the Prince of Liechtenstein. Among its gems was a pair of terrestrial and celestial globes executed in 1522 for the Bishop of Brixen, possibly by the cosmographer Johann Schoner. The globe of the world, the third oldest to survive, draws on the cartography of Waldsmuller, while the celestial globe was designed by Schoner's friend Albert Dürer. The Brixen globes were designated for the Center for British Art by Mr. Mellon shortly before he died, and now adorn its founder's room in his memory. In 1962, all these lines of collecting interest were being pursued in high gear. The Brickhouse renovation was complete, and many of the book collections were installed there. The stage was set for the largest single accretion of books and manuscripts to the collection, the Robinson Collection of Americana. Mellon had already had extensive dealings with Lionel and Philip Robinson. At this point in time, the most important booksellers in Britain the brothers were the third generation of a firm that had begun in Newcastle. They had moved their operation to London in 1936, locating in Pall Mall, it was said, so that impoverished peers leaving their clubs across the street could find a way to sell their family libraries in congenial surroundings. In 1946, the Robinsons made one of the greatest gambles in bookselling history, buying virtually unseen the vast residue of the famed Sir Thomas Phillips collection of books and manuscripts for 100,000 pounds. The story of the Phillips Library is another tale too long and well known to recite here, but it suffices to say that by 1956, it had made the brothers very rich indeed, and they ostensibly retired from regular business to, with most of the Phillips books still intact, held by themselves or trusts they controlled. In fact, the brothers were still very much in business, but now operating on a plane driven more by tax concerns than need for cash. Accustomed to aristocrats, and they claimed to have bought more than 80 noble libraries in their careers, they did not bother with ordinary sales to ordinary customers. For a collector on the Mellon scale, though, they were prepared to do their formidable best. The Phillips Hoard had already yielded some great non-American treasures to Mellon, and in 1961, the Robinsons sold him as an Americana appetizer. They sold him an Americana appetizer consisting of an extraordinary run of royal proclamations of James I and Charles I concerning Virginia, beginning with the 1603 broadside, an order banishing rogues to the newfound lands, the first official utterance of the crown relating to Virginia, and including a number of proclamations regulating the production and sale of tobacco. With these came another Virginia Company tract, a true and sincere declaration, London 1610. Much more soon followed. The brothers represented that the bulk of their Americana holdings were, quote, the Robinson Collection of Americana, an indivisible group of material, consisting of over 300 books and manuscripts, largely but not entirely drawn from the Phillips Collection. In the fullness of time, this proved not to be all the Phillips Americana either, as a good deal more emerged in the series of Phillips sales and at the brothers' final dispersal sales at Sotheby's in the 1980s. What was in the collection, though, was simply staggering, a remarkable treasure trove from one of the greatest British book collections, or the greatest British book collection. An agreement was reached in September 1962, and Mellon acquired at one stroke about 15% of all the Americana he was to collect. It's difficult to know where to begin in describing the Robinson Americana. In general, the books were from the early era of exploration in the colonial period, although material ranged as late as the mid-19th century. Among the earliest item was a 1522 newsletter, possibly prepared for the Fugger banking family, giving news of the then-breaking stories of Magellan and Cortez. This was complemented by Maximilianus Transvenius's De Malacca's Insulus, Cologne, 1523, the first edition of one of the two primary accounts of Magellan. The previously mentioned Drake map in the 1511 Ptolemy came from here. 
the greatest early compilation on the East Indies, Jan Lindschoten's Voyages, was present in the first English edition in contemporary CAF. Pride of Place in printed Americana goes to the elusive English edition of Debris' illustrated version of Thomas Harriot's A Brief and True Report of the Newfoundland of Virginia, Frankfurt, 1590, with its engravings of life in the Roanoke colony after drawings by the Lieutenant Governor John White. But followed closely by another legendary rarity, John Brereton's A Brief and True Relation of the Discovery of the North Part of Virginia, London, 1602, describing a coasting voyage in the New England shores two decades before the Pilgrims. Both of these are the only copies to change hands in the last 50 years and are now in the Virginia Historical Society and UVA, respectively. Another early Massachusetts Bay item was News from New England, London, 1642, one of three known copies, the other two having been in the Bodley and British libraries more or less forever. There was also a unique copy of John Smith's description of New England, London, 1616, with a special unique uh, printed presentation title page. From the same era of Elizabethan glory was Thomas Cavendish's manuscript account of his final voyage in 1592, and the only surviving fragment of Richard Hacklewitt's original manuscript of his voyages, he argues his boundary claims against Virginia. And the original manuscript diary of that pettifogging bureaucrat tax inspector, Edward Randolph, during his visits to Virginia in 1692 and 1695. For early Canada, both the 1620 and 1627 editions of Samuel Champlain's voyages were present, with significant changes in the latter version, and the English edition of Mark Lescobo's Nova Francia, London, 1609. Among American imprints, there was Cadwallader Colden's papers relating to an act for the encouragement of the Indian trade, New York, 1724, one of only three copies complete with the engraved map, the first to be produced in New York. Only the Jones copy, offered by Rosenbach in 1939, had appeared on the market in this century, and James Lennox had paid $685 for the other copy, now in the New York Public Library, at the Brindley sale in 1880. The collection was rich in rare tracts relating to the southern colonies, including ephemeral, ephemeral pieces and the founding of Georgia and the Carolinas. Nor was there a shortage of additions to, to Virginia, with such intriguing works as John Deacon's Tobacco Tortured, London 1616, an early anti-smoking tract, with many references to the colony already dependent on that cash crop. A handsome little duodecimo volume containing both of pioneering naturalist John Jocelyn's works, John Jocelyn's works, an account of two voyages to New England and New England's rarities discovered, came from the library of Franklin's friend, the British naturalist Peter Collinson, and contains extensive annotations. It is now in the Garden Library. Another important natural history piece was the detailed manuscript account of Thomas Hutchins describing his observations of flora and fauna around Hudson's Bay in the 1770s. This has the unusual association of a gift inscription from the usually bankrupt George Catlin to Sir Thomas Phillips, who had made an exception in his tight-fisted career with his generosity toward that feckless artist. From the late colonial era were such manuscripts as the papers of Colonel Guy Johnson, the last British agent of the Iroquois before the Revolution, George III's secret instructions to General Braddock prior to the latter's disastrous ex expedition in the French and Indian War, and an extraordinary composite atlas, evidently made up around 1766, of some of the rarest American maps of the period. Ex extending into the Pacific, there was a copy of Samwell's narrative, the rarest account of Cook's third voyage by an eyewitness. In the 19th century, there was a series of George Catlin pamphlets, including his rarest, Mandan Village, printed on Phillips's Middle Hill Press. A beautiful set of Kingsborough's Antiquities of Mexico in nine large folios, provided a massive bookend of the collection chronologically. This rendition could go on and on, and the pieces I've mentioned only scratch the surface of the Robinson purchase. Any individual who had assembled these books alone in a career could think of themselves as one of the greatest Americana collectors. It became just another building block in the edifice of Mellon Holdings. The Robinson purchase, in retrospect, was the high watermark of Mr. Mellon's Americana collecting. But he continued to buy material both great and small at a fast rate, evidently with unabated enthusiasm. 
Over the next four years, from 1963 to 1966, he acquired more than 100 items each year, all building on the various themes, which are now the hallmarks of the collection. Color plate books, illustrated Americana, atlases and cartography, works of travel and exploration, works in architecture and art instruction. From Kennedy Galleries came several wonderful editions, including the manuscript notebooks of the British artist Archibald Robinson, Robert's son, compiled while he was resident in New York, along with his Elements of the Graphic Arts, New York 1802. Kennedy also supplied a series of 25 of the 28 plates of the elusive Scenographia Americana, a series of mezzotint views in Canada, the British North American colonies, and the Caribbean during the French and Indian War. Since the collection already contained a partial set of the scenographia with stunning contemporary color, this greatly enhanced the holdings in one of the most important of colonial illustrated works, although Mellon, like others who have pursued the same goal, never succeeded in completing his set. A particularly pleasing addition was the first American architecture book, the Philadelphia 1775 edition of Abraham Swan's The British Architect. Also notable was a complete set of the French newsletter, Affaires de l'Angleterre et de l'Amérique, a 17-volume series issued during the American Revolution in the armorial bindings of the Duc de la Rochefoucauldian Court. Virginiana continued to be added, including most notably a wonderful James Madison letter announcing the ratification of the United States Constitution by the Virginia Convention in June of 1788. The focus of collecting during this period swung increasingly toward maps and cartography, with purchases ranging from the 17th century works of Peter Goose's, such as Peter Goose's Sea Atlas of 1666, with its many American maps, to runs of atlases by 19th century American publishers, such as Matthew Carey and Henry Tanner, whose new American atlas, Philadelphia 1822, was obtained in a pristine copy in original parts. Works of travel and exploration added other were also notable for their cartography, such as the Pacific voyages of the French navigators La Perouse and De Flo de Moifois. In February 1967, Mr. Mellon sponsored a conference at the Brick House for curators from American libraries and booksellers specializing in Americana. For the participants, the treasures accumulated over the previous decade were a remarkable and often humbling sight. Several letters of thanks afterwards expressed the feeling that if Mellon continued, there would be nothing left to buy. But he did not. Increasingly, his many other collecting areas were claiming Mr. Mellon's interest, especially British art. In 1966, he committed himself to creating the institution which became the Yale Center for British Art. And over the next eight years, the details of its conception, design, building, and filling occupied much of an already full life. In British things, including books, he was now collecting on an institutional scale, with the intention of building a rare book library as well as an art collection within the same institution. It is hardly surprising that the Americana and Virginiana now took a back seat to these more compelling interests. Even so, items were added to Americana in this period which spanned both British and American interest. Most notable among these was a series of watercolors by Sigismund Backstrom, the ship surgeon on a trading expedition to the northwest coast of America in 1792-94, consisting of 63 original portraits of Native Americans in Nootka and Puget Sound and at the ship's reception in Hawaii. The Baxter drawings are one of the most extraordinary early visual records of the Pacific Northwest and are now with other great resources for that area in the Yale Western Americana collection in the Beinecke Library. The last hurrah of sorts was the Virginia segment of the Thomas W. Streeter sale in April 1967. Here, Mellon purchased another of the Virginia tracks, Robert Gray's A Good Speed to Virginia, London 1609, and John Smith's General History of Virginia, London 1624, which gave him four copies in all, with variant title pages and issue points. He also acquired the only known copy of Governor Francis Farquhar's speech to the House of Burgesses, printed in Williamsburg in 1761, and Thomas Jeffrey's set of six plans showing Braddock, Braddock's expedition and defeat issued in London in 1758. One can only reflect what would have happened if the Streeter sale had occurred when Mellon was still fully involved in Americana instead of on the waning cusp of his interest. The already pace-setting prices of Streeter would probably have gone a little higher. 
The acquisition of Americana did not entirely stop, however, and in the six years from 1968 to 1973, another hundred items were added to the collection, some of them books of the first importance, but with fewer pieces acquired each successive year. The first color plate book produced in the United States, William Birch's The City of Philadelphia, as it appeared in the year 1800, published there the same year, was added in 1968, as was the greatest 19th century Mexican color plate book, Julio Michaud's album Pitoresco de la República Mexicana, Mexico, 1856. In 1970 came an opportunity which could not be turned down. The first book, um, a volume of 17th century tracts, including the first book of Captain John Smith, uh, his true relation, London, 1608, bound with Smith's advertisements for unexperienced planters of New England, London, 1631, and other tracts. A fifth variant set of Maximilian's travels was added in 1971, as well as the monumental map of Virginia and Maryland, drawn by Walter Hoxton, issued about 1735, entitled To the Merchants of London Trading in Virginia and Maryland, this map of the Bay of Chesapeake. Finally, in 1973, only five items were bought. Two of these are fitting denouements to the Mellon collection. William Byrd's extremely rare promotional tract on Virginia, New Gefundus Eden, published in Bairn in 1737, and a final Virginia Company tract, Daniel Price's Saul's Prohibition Stayed, London 1609, a defense of the conduct of the company, the fledgling Virginia colony. Even as the last items were being added to the collection, its dissolution was beginning. Many books and manuscripts of great American interest were given to the Center for British Art in this period, around the time of its opening, and continued to be transferred during the rest of Mellon's life, along with the Abbey Collection. And in the early 1970s, and if the early 1970s saw the end of collecting Americana, they really marked the end of all of Mr. Mellon's book collecting. While Mrs. Mellon continued to vigorously acquire books in the building of the Garden Library, Mr. Mellon focused his energies on paintings to the exclusion of books. Despite the gifts described earlier and the transfer of some of the items to the Garden Library, the Americana collection filled the old library and spilled over in other storage areas in the brick house, where it remained for the next 25 years. At the time of Mr. Mellon's death in February 1999, there were over 1,750 individual books, maps, atlases, manuscripts, sets of plates, and collections of drawings separately cataloged in Americana and Virginiana, besides an extensive reference library and uncatalogued secondary material. Unlike all of his other book collections, which were specifically designated in their disposition, Mellon left the final disposal of the Americana up to his executors within parameters. Since his will is a public document, I will quote, I bequeath to the University of Virginia of Charlottesville, Virginia, Virginia Historical Society of Richmond, Virginia, and said Yale University, all books, manuscripts, atlases, and maps constituting Americana and Virginiana, most of which are shelved in the Brickhouse Library, but wherever situated, the division of such items among such three organizations to be made by my executors in such shares, whether equal or unequal, and to the exclusion of any one or more of such organizations, as my executors shall determine at their discretion. The executors were thus left with the formidable task of placing the collection in a way that would carry out Mr. Mellon's wishes and best serve scholarship. It was clear that a balanced division of materials was the best way to proceed. They began with three principles. First, Mellon had often expressed a wish for Virginia material to stay in Virginia, unless it was a book already held by both UVA and the Virginia Historical Society, and they wanted to honor this. Secondly, they hoped to avoid duplication unless the Mellon copy had unique features. Thirdly, they wished to build on the strength of existing collections. With this in mind, and once a detailed database catalog had been created, a list of the collection was circulated to the two Virginia institutions and the two Yale institutions involved, the Center for British Art and the Beinecke Library. Their staffs were then asked to rate what they lacked on a one-to-five scale of desirability, five being most wanted. This system worked remarkably well, so that the vast majority of items could be assigned to the institution that most wanted them, bearing in mind the original principles. In only a few instances were Salomaic decisions required. 
The result fulfilled Mr. Mellon's desire to make his collection part of the cultural resources available to researchers under the auspices of two great universities and a great historical society. I can think of no other instance in the history of institutional collecting in this country where so great a collection was divided in such a, such a fashion to the complete satisfaction of all the parties involved. Beverly Carter, Mr. Mellon's longtime curator and one of the executors, and myself, physically separated the collection into its four new divisions in the course of two marathon days in late April. It is simultaneously awe-inspiring and sad to handle so many extraordinary books and to disassemble such a remarkable group. And I can tell you it is easier to divide up small quartos than large folios. Over the next few weeks, the books were packed and moved to their new homes, the last of Mr. Mellon's great collections to leave the brick house. The Americana and Virginiana collections were only a small facet of Mr. Mellon's long career, although, as I said at the outset, they should loom large in any history of collecting in the field. In their new homes, these books and manuscripts will aid the goals of scholarship, which, they did so much, which he did so much to support throughout his lifetime and remain one of Paul Mellon's many legacies to the cultural institutions of this country. Thank you. I hope you will join our speaker for a reception in the McGregor Room in the Alderman Library. The easiest way to get there is simply to follow everyone else, I think, although I'm sure most of you know how to get there. It, it, uh, go in through the main entrance and take either the staircase or the elevator down to two.